And then the Stop the Steal campaign was sort of the perfect combination of it. It's being taken away, given to the Democrats who don't deserve it and who are tyrannical. And so those people actually then are mobilized into action through language that tells them they're the ones being heroic. They're defending democracy. And they then frame it as courageous revolutionary acts. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. How can we protect our country from the violent and anti-democratic threat of the far right? In this episode, I spoke with Professor Cynthia Miller Idris, founder of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril, at American University, where she is professor in the schools of public affairs and education. We talked about how she came to her area of research, her recent book called Hate in the Homeland, and what she's working on in her lab. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Professor Cynthia Miller Idris of American University in Peril. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Cynthia, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Cynthia Miller Idris. I'm a professor in the School of Public Affairs and in the School of Education at American University. Um, the author of the recent book, Hate in the Homeland, The New Global Far Right. And uh, I'm a sociologist by training at American. I also run the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, which designs and tests out-of-the-box ideas to try to prevent and interrupt radicalization processes to a variety of different kinds of extremism and misinformation. In terms of a quick biography, I just sociologist by training, although as an undergrad, I was a German studies major. So the first couple of decades of my career were research in Germany on school-based responses to hate and far-right extremism. And that uh, research became more relevant in the States over the last few years. And so I've gotten much more involved in U.S.-based and global conversations around mostly around youth and radicalization, and then uh, far-right extremism in general. Well, I really wish it hadn't become more relevant here. I agree. I agree. <laughs> it's a, it's a not a great development. No. I'd like to go back to irrelevance, as I say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard that, actually, from a whole lot of scholars, from scholars of the Constitution to, you know, uh, lots of things that, uh, Mr. Trump and, and other parts of the right have brought to us mainstreamed lately, as you say. And you said a little bit about it, but I'm always interested in how people get down a course like this. Where did you grow up? What kind of family? I grew up in a small town, Pennsylvania, a town called Easton. My dad was the chaplain of the local college. My mom was a teacher. I grew up pretty ordinary life. I was a softball player and a runner track and uh, worked as a waitress and in the summer camp and, you know, had a lot of small town ordinary experiences, but was really interested for reasons I can't explain in foreign languages and uh, took every foreign language I could in high school. Um, so I never took all the other electives one could take, which is as I, I have no art skills or music skills as a result, but I studied French and German and Spanish in high school and um, majored in German because for a small town girl who didn't have a lot of, I'd never traveled overseas, that seemed like the hardest of the, of the languages. And nobody told me, of course, maybe I should take Arabic or Mandarin or something that there were harder languages. It sounds really naive, but it was the way that it was. And I majored in German thinking, I'll take this one first. It's harder. And then I can learn other ones later. And 
So that's how I ended up a German studies major. And, and then when I went to Germany as a study abroad student, stepped on a plane to go overseas for the year, you know, first time I'd been overseas. And I just discovered when I got there, probably because I was interested in education and, you know, having a whole family of teachers, my mom and other relatives, that uh, they had a really different education system. And I took a class on minorities in the school system, the comparison of the U.S. and Germany, and got really interested in it and ended up uh, doing a thesis on the German apprenticeship system, the vocational system, which two thirds of youth go through. And that just led to a career initially and then back to graduate school to study kind of what happens to working class youth in, in a place like Germany and how they are integrated into society and what civic education looks like in those schools. And as a result of that work in those schools, I landed doing dissertation field work there at a time when uh, there was a surge in the far right. And so I ended up becoming a kind of accidental expert on, on how schools responded to a surge in far right extremism. Uh, and that was, you know, 1999, 2000, 2001. So that's what I was doing around that time. And that's how uh, things progressed away from that original interest into more far right extremism. Why was there a surge in the far right when you were over there? What was causing that? The late 1990s, you know, it was less than a decade after German unification. It was about a decade after the fall of the Iron Curtain it was a time of tremendous social change in Germany and also tremendous inequality between East and West Germany. You had third generation folks, mostly from Turkey, who had been guest workers who were not really eligible for German citizenship under the German laws. And then you had you know, hundreds of thousands of, of people coming back who had been behind the Iron Curtain who were eligible for German citizenship because they had fled so they spoke Russian or another language, but became, you know, kind of German citizens at the border when they were able to return. And so you had this really interesting juxtaposition that challenged a lot of social thinking and policy thinking about who belongs in Germany, um, because you had third generation kids who weren't citizens, who spoke German fluently, who maybe had never even been to Turkey, you know, but couldn't be citizens. And then you had Russian kids arriving in school who you know, spoke Russian, but were German citizens. And so the citizenship laws themselves changed in 1999 and made non-ethnic Germans then eligible for citizenship if you were born in Germany um, to parents who had legally been there for, I think, at least eight years. That time was the change. And so it just was a dramatic moment of changing conceptions of who belongs in the country. And um, and that brought with it, of course, some backlash about who belongs in the country and some ideas that were coming from the extreme right. Germany, one of the ways it's so different than the U.S. is that Nazi and Hitler passed. And I imagine that colored the response in the schools and made them take things pretty seriously. But what did you see when you were doing that dissertation? What did you learn about how they handled it? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that Germany since the Holocaust has I mean, approached the far right is that it's a threat to democracy. The whole approach of, you know, is about you combat extremism by protecting democracy and by teaching people how to keep a democracy flowing smoothly. So it's a kind of defense, defensive democracy position. And so they're able to very quickly, I think, or more quickly recognize extremist ideas as threats to democracy compared to, I think, what we have seen them in protected under free speech, which makes sense in an American context, but then you don't necessarily recognize the weakening of democracy at the same time, I think. And so on the one hand, you have that situation, but you also have a reaction to it that is, at that time at least, that was in part rooted in ideas about pride in the country that came from teachers what I saw was a younger generation of, of kids who wanted to reinvent what it meant to be German three or four generations after the Holocaust and wanted to be able to express a sense of pride and belonging. And an older generation of teachers who really came of age in a generation where you could not say something like, I'm proud to be German. They would literally say things in classrooms like national pride is a sickness textbooks that I saw in class said things like, you know, there's no cause to be proud of anything of being German because you didn't do anything other than be born. And so the idea was you couldn't take pride in a collective accomplishment. I think that for a younger generation who, who had far right groups then telling them, 
you should be proud to be German and, and, and allowing the far right to become the space where pride was expressed. And so there was this kind of dynamic that inadvertently suppressed national pride and allowed the far right to thrive on that identity. And so one of the things I argue in that book was, you know, I learned that each generation has to be given the space to reinvent their relationship with the nation, whether that's through protest, whether that's through kneeling in front of a national anthem or a flag, whatever that is, that each generation has to be given the space to reinvent that, even if an older generation has trouble with it. Um, but it has to be done within a context that is about protecting kind of democracy and democratic practices. And I think the teachers in that case were trying very hard to do something that they thought was right, but inadvertently were creating spaces that made the far right more attractive. Do you think we over here opened ourselves up to something similar? A lot of the battles we had politically around flag burning or patriotism through the 90s and 2000s seems like the left was paying attention a lot to the the blights on our history, many of them, and maybe deconstructing patriotism a little bit. Do you think that that gave an opening for the right to seize it over here a little bit? It might have. It's an interesting question. I mean, I think that we're in a period of time for the last decade or more where we are in a place where the meaning of being American or national belonging is, is very contested. And I think when you have contestation like that, socially and politically, groups on the extremist fringe, you know, whether that's the left or the right, will exploit that as opportunities to thrive and to try to get narratives in. And what we've seen from the far right is the use of, in particular, from the far right, is the use of misinformation and disinformation and narratives about something being stolen from you, something's going to be taken away from you. And so even if you have a democratic legislature trying to, to, you know, produce, um, you know, restrictions, some restrictions on gun control, let's say, uh, that gets framed as Democrats are coming for your guns, right? And so there's this kind of narrative or storytelling aspect of it that, that has created opportunities, I guess, where, you know, that the manipulation of, of events creates opportunities for the far right to insert stories that make people feel that something is being stolen or taken away from them, which is a really powerful recruitment tactic by the extreme far right. So I think it's an opportunity, you know, rather than an inevitability. That's the way that I see it. I read your book, uh, Hate in the Homeland, but I haven't read your previous books. What had you been learning about extremism here before that? Can you summarize what's going on or what's been happening? Well, I think the book I wrote before this book, which was called The Extreme Gone Mainstream, was the book where I learned the most about how cultural channels matter and convey extreme ideas. And so that book was really, I mean, it's a whole book about T-shirts, essentially. And T-shirts I call walking billboards, you know, for both carrying ideology you know, displaying it, but also communicating it to others who pass you on the street. And, you know, it's, of course, there's hoodies, there's other clothing and products too, but really it's about the, what, what eventually turned into kind of memes, but initially were t-shirt iconography that transformed what had been a very uniform shaved head, bomber jacket, combat boots kind of aesthetic in the far right racist skinhead scene into a much more diverse, fragmented, broad range of, of aesthetic appearances that people, I think, often just saw a stylistic change. And one of the things that I was arguing was it wasn't just stylistic change. It allowed for a whole new kind of game-playing weaponization of youth culture to emerge that used coded symbols, that used iconography, that would drop the vowels out of letters to get around bands, that would use foreign words so that they could say the word for swastika, which would be illegal if it was in German, but they get it in another language and then it's not illegal. And that kind of then led to or preceded the meme development. And I think people still look at memes as just kind of youth culture. But when you look at how memes connect to offline violence, so, you know, you get um, whether that's the boogaloo, right, which starts as an internet joke among teenagers and then at least two of the domestic terrorist, violent terrorist deaths last year were directly attributed to the Boogaloo, right? I mean, you, you end up getting grown adults out there in groups like advocating for civil war. 
you have Pepe the Frog, who starts out again as a sort of joke among teenagers, but then in Charlottesville and on January 6th at the Capitol, you have people waving a flag called Kekistan, which evolved out of that Pepe the Frog meme. And so I think, you know, youth culture, one of the things I learned from that previous book is that youth culture, which is often dismissed as just being, you know, something kids will grow out of or not relevant to political violence can have its own influence on political violence, not just on youth themselves, but also on other adults out there in the world. And so, that you know, both of those previous books, I think, were really oriented toward understanding why youth are important and powerful to study and to understand as part of these processes. How big of a problem do we have? Well, it's a really good question. Um, so at the time that I wrote that book, uh, so which is I was writing it, you know, finishing it up about a year ago, the figures are just on the white supremacist side were about 75,000 to 100,000 people in the country who are members of extremist groups, right? White supremacist extremist groups. There's two things to know about that. One, that doesn't include all the militias, the anti-government extremists, which we know are, you know, at least as big as that. And it doesn't include QAnon, the radical, you know, conspiracy theorists. And it only includes members of groups. So for example, on January 6th, I think the latest statistics are that 15% of the people who've been arrested were members of formal groups. In the Global Terrorism Index from 2020, they indicate that of terrorist attacks that have happened in the West, only 7% were committed by people who are officially members of groups. So, you know, I think there's a lot of attention to groups because they're more countable. Um, we can monitor them. It's the primary strategy through which law enforcement tries to infiltrate and interrupt plots. And they are important for the spread of propaganda as well. But when we're looking at violence and hate crimes, you know, you really have to understand that the vast majority of this happens through individuals who are not officially card carrying members of groups. And so that's a much bigger number of people and much harder to really estimate or understand. And so it's bigger than anyone would want it to be. Let's just say it's it's bigger than fringe, um, than pure fringe. Even if the groups themselves are fringe actors, the numbers of people who are radicalized supporters or sympathizers or could potentially be mobilized, as we saw on January 6th, is much larger. I mean, you used the term far right, which actually kind of put me at ease to have a term to use with you when I was reading that. But it is a pretty amorphous line between right, far right, and a million other things. W would you call uh, former President Trump far right? I, the way that I define far right is that it's a combination of anti-democratic and authoritarian views and then dehumanizing and hierarchies of superiority and inferiority kinds of beliefs and then and then conspiracy theories and the use of violence. And I think one of the things to understand is that people can um, and do regularly express things that are far right, just like saying is someone a racist or not a racist, right? They can say and do racist things without being like a card carrying or defined member of who's racist. So I would certainly say that President Trump has done and said things that are racist, that are dehumanizing, that were anti-democratic at times, has done things that reflect far right views. But, but I think categorizing anyone as one thing or another is less useful because it's, it allows for this kind of, you know, plausible deniability. There's no member of a group there. This person's not a member of a group. And it's the same thing with being a racist or not a racist. I think it's a more useful thing to think of is this person done a racist thing? Is this person expressed racist views? And there, I think, you know, we have evidence that yes, I mean, there's been dehumanizing speech. There's been, so it's, I think that's where it's more useful to think about in those terms. He is sort of an interesting combination of careful about certain things he says, like at the rally on the 6th. He's a little hard to pin down, but he also quite commonly retweets a member of a group or, you know, makes lots of different nods and winks that maybe they're contestable, but people on the far right think he's on their side. Well, that's, you know, that's exactly what I've argued before. I mean, that, that comment of about the Proud Boys at the first debate, I think, was in the end, you know, 
no one will ever know what he meant by that. Did he mean that as a call out? Did he not mean it? Was it just a slip of the tongue? Was he trying to say something else? But what I can tell you is how it was perceived by the far right across the spectrum. And they, you know, certainly the Proud Boys and other members of the far right online saw that as a call to action, saw it as as a legitimation. And I think that's where, you know, we have to understand that public figures, what they say, there's a responsibility, you know, in terms of um, the words that people say, that leaders say, and what's read as legit, even before you're starting to talk about QAnon, who are kind of looking for clues or breadcrumbs, you know, in what people say, even when there are none, talking about far-right groups perceiving something to be a legitimation and, and, and that then lending itself to a kind of normalization, I think is a lot of what we saw over the last five years or so. Why did you write this book, Hate in the Homeland? What's your intended audience and what are you hoping to have as a response? So I turned in that last book, The Extreme Gone Mainstream, in June of 2017. And then two months later, Charlottesville happened. And all of a sudden, I was catapulted into conversations here in the U.S. and and, and Europe and elsewhere where I was just constantly being asked to explain, I mean, why were all these young men in khakis and polo shirts carrying tiki torches, you know, looking clean cut, no masks, no, you know, this was not the face of white supremacy that people were familiar with. It didn't fit the aesthetic package that, and so I was just giving a lot of talks explaining that mainstreaming, even the aesthetic mainstreaming, like what the coding looks like, what the symbols look like, why people, why this has changed and how. And uh, so I spent like, you know, two, three years really being involved in a lot of conversations. And meanwhile, you know, Pittsburgh happens and then Christchurch happens and El Paso happens. And so there's also not just that kind of normalization and mainstream that we've been seeing, but real escalation in mobilization to violence and terrible violence, terrorist violence. And so we're seeing that happen, the numbers going up. And so I was in a lot of conversations that were talking about the rising far right on every measure we had available, you know, the far right's growing in terms of propaganda and numbers of plots foiled and actual lethality. Almost all those conversations started from one of two points. One was what I call top down or bottom up. So one was focused on the groups, this idea of like, what are their tactics? What are their organizations? And, you know, that was frustrating to me because, as I've said, you know, the the vast majority of violence comes from individuals who are not formal members of groups. And the other side of the conversation was kind of bottom up, like what are the vulnerabilities inside people's heads that make them susceptible to radicalization? And I had spent a lot of time on that in my previous book and was interested in it. But I felt that there was a set of questions that weren't being asked, which is, you know, where are people encountering these ideas And if you started looking at, you know, not just people in the hardcore who are already radicalized, but people on the kind of margins or peripheries who are encountering these ideas in their everyday lives as a result of the mainstreaming and the normalization that had happened, you know, you start to see that we we need to ask not just why and how far-right extremism was growing, but where and when it was growing. And so I felt that there were parts of the conversation that weren't being addressed and this book was different than the other books because it it felt like there was a sense of urgency to kind of intervene into the conversation. And if you start asking where and when things are happening, you start to have a different idea about what we need to intervene instead of just having a securitization and law enforcement and militarization approach to addressing extremism. You start understanding there are specific moments in time and places where we can intervene to interrupt those pathways. And that's a real emphasis on intervention approach that's needed. And so I felt the sense of urgency, you know, was worried about violence between the election and the inauguration in particular, no matter who won. And so really wrote uh, with an aim to get the book out in the fall so that I'd be able to hopefully you know, maybe shape the way that some people were thinking about this in time to start looking at interventions. And obviously that didn't happen. I mean, the book came out, but, you know, it's, you can't, you can't change everybody's opinions and uh, um, ideas. But my concern now is that we are actually, after January 6th, headed right down that path of militarization and securitization and global war on terror 2.0 kind of approach to addressing far-right extremism instead of thinking about the possibilities of intervening and working on prevention earlier. Do you think that that path 
the militarization and securitization that you mentioned is counterproductive? I think it is counterproductive. I think it's counterproductive in lots of different ways. One, I don't know that that's the future that anybody wants, right? I mean, I live in Washington, D.C. You know, between January 6th and the inauguration, we lived in a militarized city where there were military checkpoints on the bridges. And, you know, if you tried to go downtown, it still is costing us, I read last week, in the Washington Post, you know, $2 million a week, just the extra security at the Capitol um, alone, right? Not even talking about the cost of security in other parts of the city and, and in other capitals around, in state capitals around the country. So, you know, just from a cost standpoint alone, and also from a freedom of movement, I mean, do we want a future in which we just keep accepting more dump out your water bottle and take off your shoes before you go on the airplane kind of reactions, um, but on a much bigger scale because it's within our own country and the freedom of movement within our cities. That's one one reason, I think, why it's ineffective. Another is that, you know, you just, the carceral kind of approach in general, it relies on law enforcement, it relies on military that we know now have to be vetted because we know that there are at least anecdotally, if not systematically, also problems of far right and other uh, kinds of extremist engagement within those um, military and law enforcement groups. And you're just feeding into the prison system, which is itself a place where radicalization happens through groups like the Aryan Brotherhood. And so, you know, for lots of different reasons, the carceral solution and the securitized and militarized approach is not one that's going to get us to a better place on its own. You run a lab, which uh, somehow comes to spell peril, Polarization and Extremism Research Innovation Lab. Amazing coincidence. Tell me about that. Like, did you found that? What's the what's the sort of founding story for that? I founded it. It's a great founding story, actually, because about two years ago, I had coffee with someone from a funding agency or a funder was asking my advice, saying that they wanted to know what would it take to create an empirically tested, nationally scalable intervention to prevent youth radicalization. And, you know, I was about to go on sabbatical. Like I was thinking about what do I do next? I thought I might write this book, but I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. And so I said, look, I think that really you should hold some blue sky meetings, bring together some experts and really like dream it up and find out. And not just experts on extremism, but people who work on race and immigration and people who work on education and bring people together to think of out of the box ideas. And then you know, I, I went home and um, from that coffee and I got so excited about it that I, I wrote back after a couple of weeks and I said, you know, I can't stop thinking about it. Let me do it. And, and so um, in the end, that's what I did. I ran these blue sky meetings and these brilliant people came together and generously dreamed up actionable ideas. And at the end of that, the doctoral student who was running those meetings with I, Brian Hughes, and I decided that we should uh, go after funding to try to test some of those ideas. And out of that, the lab was born. And so we've been for a little bit less than a year now. We started the lab in November of 2019 and we got our first funding in April of 2020, just as the pandemic hit. And so we have been um, testing and we'll, we'll be publishing over the next few weeks the results of a lot of our first studies. So uh, we have some good findings and I think that hopefully we'll start to move the needle a little bit on how people might think about intervening. So the goal of it is to try different tactics that you can actually uh, measure and see, you know, A, B, test them or whatever, figure out what version of communication Mm -hmm. has effect? Is that? So yeah, we're testing different things. So we we created an animated video together with the Bertelsmann Foundation on the Boogaloo scenes called the Boogaloo Ballad of Henry Graves to see could an animated video help people understand the role of misinformation in contributing to somebody radicalizing to a violent militia movement. And then we ran an impact study where we took 500 people and had them watch the video and ask them a set of questions before and after to try to understand. And that's being analyzed right now. So I don't know the results of that yet, but we're creating a series of toolkits in partnership with the Southern Poverty Law Center to help parents and then eventually teachers and coaches and mental health professionals. So parents, teachers, uh, mental health professionals and coaches are the four categories if you provide better information to them about the risks of online radicalization for youth and 
strategies to intervene to reduce vulnerabilities, does that actually make them feel more equipped? So this kind of saying, what if you just said, you know, in the kind of if you see something, say something model of relying on a community um, to start to address these problems through schools, through wherever youth are um, to kind of engage with them. And then we ran um, the first one, the parents and caregivers uh, guide. We ran an impact study with 755 parents that said, can you read through this 18 page guide? And then a series of questions before and after that help us understand, did they improve their knowledge? Did they feel more empowered to engage? Would they be more likely to talk to a child who they thought had been exposed to extremism? All kinds of questions like that. And again, that will, it's almost out, but I've seen the early results and that one is, um, you know, moved the needle on every measure so far. Um, those are great findings to show that we can have an impact on parents by providing parents and caregivers by providing better tools. So, you know, we, we're also testing different kinds of video based interventions on um, anti-vax uh, misinformation on combating male supremacy and scientific racism. So those results will come out soon, but a lot of it is trying to use different, like trying to think differently, like what would it take to prepare to prevent things from happening within the mainstream rather than just trying to target, you know, de-radicalization or disengagement at the hardcore to say like, how can you help people understand what propaganda looks like, what online manipulation looks like, what a technique like scapegoating looks like so that when they encounter it in the world, they're better equipped to recognize it and see it for what it is. Let's say that you and other people working on it come up with a bunch of different useful things to fight this other kind of virus that we have. How do we inoculate the whole youth of the country against this? It seems like you almost need government to get behind it. And that is going to be a, a war to yeah. even make it happen, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, I think that's a question of scalability. And I think the first thing we need is evidence, right? So so we are right now in the evidence gathering phase, and we want to show that a nonpartisan group of researchers can produce evidence on what works to prevent violence, to prevent people from being susceptible to misinformation, to disinformation, to propaganda. And then, you know, then the question is, how do you scale it up? And I think there are a lot of questions about that, but I guess one thing I would encourage people to think is, is, you know, I have my own skepticism about whether the government can or should do this. But when you look at other countries and what other countries have done, that's where I think we have real lessons. Um, and so one is um, in New Zealand, which is after Christchurch launching, you know, kind of a massive community-based engagement approach to preventing violent extremism. One is Germany, where even after, you know, um, before the recent kind of scandals in Germany, which I can talk about, but, you know, right, more rising extremism there, but they have had a federal agency called the Federal Agency for Civic Education, which is different than the Ministry of Education, right? It's not the agency that's charged with like math and science literacy, it is an agency that is charged with helping the public better understand and react to things that might interrupt or, or challenge or threaten democracy. And, you know, when we had 9-11, 14 months later, we did create an entire national agency, which is the Department of Homeland Security that did not exist before. And it was a reaction to 9-11. So we've done that scale before of agency creation. And I just think that, you know, Instead of saying, okay, the reaction to 9-11 was to create a whole agency that was focused on securitization. What if the reaction to January 6th was to create an agency that's focused on combating misinformation or public literacy, media literacy? And that's, that may sound Pollyannish, but I think that we have done scalable things like that before if we can recognize the problem for what it is and not just see it through a securitized lens. It sounds like a good idea to me. The problem is we have so many crises right now that for, you know, the Biden administration to put its chips down on any particular thing is hard. But I don't know if you watched Trump's speech. He's still going. He's, if anything, magnifying the lies and going after getting back into power in every way that he knows how. It seems to me like we have a crisis, an ongoing crisis in one party captured by people like that and elections coming up. 
I worry whether there's enough work going on to harden our institutions, you know? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I worry about it too. And I think that's where I see this as, you know, a bigger crisis than just January 6th. What strings a lot of these crises together? Obviously, climate change has its own set of crises, but it also has a misinformation and a disinformation problem. You know, the pandemic has a lot of problems, but it also has a conspiracy theory and a misinformation and disinformation problem about both the virus and its origins and about the vaccines. And so, you know, and same thing with elections and election integrity and and with extremist propaganda related to white supremacist extremism or gun control or, you know, anything else. Right. And so I think that when you start to look at a thread as a through line there around public education and media literacy and the way to combat misinformation as something that's bigger than just about extremism. And that that's what I mean by like a whole agency that would be about you know, really understanding that the public is vulnerable. And we have as a country, you know, invested in ways that I would never suggest that we not invest, but, you know, through USAID and other agencies and in, um, you know, helping vulnerable democracies or fragile democracies overseas prepare their publics to be less um, vulnerable to the manipulation that can happen around elections in like Myanmar or places, right? And, you know, we know that, that that happens and we just haven't really you know, I think this country, we like to think of ourselves as a beacon of democracy and not a fragile democracy. And I think when you understand that democracy is something that has to be continually protected and cultivated and that it can be fragile and that we're just as fragile, you know, as any other potential place in the world to this kind of misinformation, we're not immune to it, right? Um, that you have to make us immune to it and you have to keep investing in that. And I think that that's, that's where, I'm not saying that'll solve every problem, but it's it's just not an approach the government has typically taken. And I guess that's where right now where I am in the moment is um, thinking that civil society has to be the answer and that individual donors and foundations and corporations can step up if the government won't. So maybe we don't get a federal agency for civic education, but we get more funding to provide scalable stories, at least about what works and ways to create curriculum that can be adopted then by schools or by communities and parents. So, you know, this week I'm giving a talk in a public library, you know, and a talk, um, you know, for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Like there's lots of different ways I think that that we can reach the public and help them understand um, that that this is something everybody has to take on as a shared obligation, even if the federal government won't do it. All of the things that you identify in your book that I just read about T-shirts and food shows and mixed martial arts, places where the far right is conveying information. It's in all of those other places that you identified also in those other things that are going wrong, like like whether or not we have a, a good election system. You're right. It's all over the place. People using similar techniques to communicate bad information. So how do we tackle that? There are people working, obviously, on deplatforming or content moderation, et cetera. But, you know, that kind of thing, I'm not saying it's not important, but it's always a Band-Aid solution. Like, it's always they a They just go hide somewhere Exactly. More. They just expand, right? And, yeah. so, and so that's why my view is, like, the only sustainable and scalable way to do this is to help people recognize it when they see it and, and know how to react to it and it's easier for me to think about it with like fifth graders, but although I always say like, we need it for fifth graders and we need it for 50 year olds. But if people understand for fifth graders that you need to provide them with some kind of digital literacy so that they, you know, understand how to protect their privacy, their digital footprint, how they understand what predators might act like online. Right. But we haven't given them any tools for recognizing propaganda or misinformation or for source integrity. In fact, you know, I remember asking a teacher once about this and, and they said, well, we're, we hope that the parents do that, right? Oh like yeah. that's, that's what the teacher said. Yeah. And I thought like, oh my gosh, we're in trouble. Like some if, of those if, parents anyway are on the wrong side of the fight. Some of the parents are not going to be, first of all, like if par- parents don't even know themselves and then some are, you know, contributing to the problem. And so, you know, and I, I don't blame that teacher. They have enough to worry about, but it's, if teachers aren't mandated to do it, if we don't have curricular guidance and we don't see it as a shared obligation or part of what schools should be doing, and we continue to have like merit pay for teachers determined based on test scores in a limited number of subjects, 
of course, teachers rationally are not going to focus on that. They, they don't have the time um, and they haven't been trained to do it. But that's where I think we can start changing the narratives. And I think if January 6th did anything, it's a bit of a wake up call for Americans that, you know, we, we are in a crisis point on these issues about how vulnerable people are to, you know, a universe of disinformation um, and continue to have that kind of disinformation and gaslighting happening even about January 6th and who was responsible. And so people have to be helped to understand the way that they can be manipulated. And it's, you know, I think understanding it from a point of empathy and not just judgment is really important in this. I mean, how do we get to a consensus or do we need to? It seems like there's a big risk that the intersection with partisanship corrupts response like it has for a long time with with global warming or climate change. The minute that fighting extremism seems like fighting Republicans, then they're against it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, the question of the <laughs> the moment, right? I don't know the answer to. I'm interested in preventing, you know, propaganda, misinformation, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm also interested in preventing violence. And usually when you start talking about prevention of violence, then, you know, you can find some shared interests. And so, uh, you know, there are certain places where I think we can take as starting points. But the the need to rebuild, you know, at levels that I don't know how to do myself, like trust and communication and, you know, respect for facts, respects for science. These are going to be generational challenges that, you know, I think this country has been through periods like this before and can come back from it. But we need experts on a lot of different levels, not just, you know, folks like me who are testing basically interventions that are at the beginning of this process, right? So talk to me in 10 years, maybe I'll have an answer. <laughs> to me, it feels like the Republican Party is infiltrated by the far right pretty successfully and going to be more so. And so how do you... I you mean, know? it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. really interesting. This, you know, there was a great article in the New York Times last week about the far right party, um, the Alternative for Germany party in Germany that was talking about the possibility that that party is going to be put on a kind of suspicious watch list that enables the government to actually surveil and monitor it in a different way for promoting misinformation and propaganda and a variety of other things. And, but the take of that article was about the, you know, back to this issue of like needing to protect democracy in ways that I think we haven't thought enough about. Like, what does it mean to protect democracy, even from your own political system? This is where I would be really interesting. And it sounds like you have been talking to constitutional scholars. I think, you know, people who really understand how the system was set up and do we need a multi-party system? Is that a, is that a possibility? What does it look like to have a divide within one of our own political parties? Um, you know, these are questions for, for political scholars, I think, to unpack. And so again, like these folks who are teaching political science right now, I think are just, you know, American politics is, it's an incredible case study right now. It, it is. I've also talked to Christian Picciolini. He was one of these people who had been the old style uh, skinhead, racist, violent person, and and then started a nonprofit to try to pull people out of that. And what I remember from the, that conversation a couple of years ago is a lot of these vulnerable young men are just looking for some kind of belonging, looking for camaraderie. You have to basically be compassionate and pull them out of it with positivity. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Christian articulates really well um, through his story what is also what I found in my last book, which is that kind of the major on the driver side for youth, they are attracted to the far right often because it provides a sense of belonging, purpose and meaning, a way to enact a sense of difference or engagement with the world that there's often a lot of heroism, actually, like this call to be heroic or to defend to be a warrior, to be a soldier for something that you believe in, and and also coupled with a sense of rebellion. And I think particularly for youth, that's important. You get a lot of like kind of F you to society, like, you know, lashing out, and this is a place to be angry and to convert that anger into action. And so we see both things at play with the, not just with youth, but with adults right now, which is that they are, you know, in many ways, the stuff, the steel narrative was like the perfect 
script for what we already know to be an incredibly powerful dynamic and attracting people to the far right, which is this idea that, you know, something is being taken away from you to which you are entitled and given to someone else who doesn't deserve it. So it's the sense of precariousness plus entitlement. And, you know, that precariousness is not actual disenfranchisement. I think that's really important. People sometimes call it economic insecurity. It's not that. It's not the most unemployed who are there. It's not people who are really on the bottom rung of the ladder. It's ones that are that think they could fall down there. They could lose that. So for the study I often cite is that um, you're not more likely to join the far right if you're unemployed, but you are more likely if you grew up with an unemployed parent. So it's the psychological experience of feeling like you could lose something that really matters. And so when you see that, you know, 60% of the initial arrests at the Capitol were people who had had a bankruptcy or an eviction in their past or a tax lien. To me, what that says is these are people, many of whom have had that experience that lends them a sense of precarity, even if they flew in on a private jet. So they're not actually disenfranchised but they have had this psychological experience that could lead them to feel that something could be taken away. It's coupled though with entitlement, which is why you don't have, you know, people who feel that way largely for the most part who are from black and brown communities coming and stormy, but it's people, there's a lot of white grievance there too, who feel like something could be taken away from them and given to someone else who doesn't deserve it. And that narrative you know, motivates white supremacist extremists who feel like they're losing a white majority country. It motivates people who are lashing out against Second Amendment laws being restricted and Democrats taking your guns away. And then the Stop the Steal campaign was sort of the perfect combination of it. It's being taken away, given to to the Democrats who don't deserve it and who are tyrannical. And so those people actually then are mobilized into action through language that tells them they're the ones being heroic they're defending democracy and they then frame it as courageous revolutionary acts. And so I think, you know, under that's where it's that, you know, you can't just combat that with facts. You can't come at that with counter narratives that tell people this is really what happened because there are real emotional reasons why they're there. And so that's, I think where Christian is absolutely right. You have to see this at through a lens of empathy and, and understand that people are susceptible to QAnon because they feel powerless and out of control right now. And here's a narrative that's offering them a way to act heroically to thwart a threat. It sounds absurd that there's a cabal of elites trafficking in children, but that's why a lot of moms, middle-aged moms, are out there mobilized by QAnon because they feel like they're able to rescue something and have some control. They may not be able to articulate that, but that is part of the vulnerability. And it feels like there's been this thread for you know, more than a century, Father Coughlin, George Wallace, Patrick Buchanan, Reagan, Trump, you know, all part of tapping into and others tapping into that. I don't know. uh, Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's true. I mean, that is an age old, like there's been a long, um, long trajectory of people, uh, populist kind of anti elite and also strategies to kind of manipulate ordinary people and the common you know, man against these nefarious elites or whatever. But I think what's changed a little bit is that we have now this universe of disinformation spreading online. And in a pandemic where everybody's spending unprecedented amounts of time online and is incredibly isolated from human contact and from people who might think differently from them or their immediate family members who they live with. And so, you know, you haven't had that, that safeguarding that might happen in ordinary ways. Well, people need to have the equivalent of masks on when they're when they're browsing, apparently. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the thing. And so what what is that equivalent? How do we actually protect people from this? And that's, you know, before the pandemic started, I was using this metaphor a lot, which is, you know, feels a little weirder now. But, you know, is that we've been treating extremism like as if it's a tumor that can be isolated and, you know, a few bad cells that just need to be like cut out and taken away from the rest of everybody else, make sure that they stay away. But that, you know, and that's the carceral approach or the securitized approach. But if you see it instead, like a virus that spreads, that it's contagious, that people can catch, and that some people are more vulnerable to others, but the only way to protect everybody is to inoculate everybody. And so, and build herd immunity. And I think that metaphor, which I wrote in the book before, you know, you can read that in the last chapter, that metaphor of herd immunity, and then a virus hits like a month after I turned in the book. Um, 
But, you know, I think it's understanding that that we have an obligation to protect the media literacy and the ability to ward off misinformation in the same way as we do the public health. It's sort of a public health crisis in its own way. And that means we don't just need the DHS or the National Security Council addressing this. We need health and human services and the Department of Education and people who are social work experts and people who understand education part of the conversations in ways that almost never happens. If you had the chance to update your book now, post-election, post-January 6th, post uh, a few, you know, a few weeks of Biden, what would you add? Well, it's interesting because I will have the chance to update it. Actually, we're going to do a revised edition for the paperback. And so there's a couple things. One, I think that I will, in the pre- in the new preface, talk a little bit more about, about adults and just explain why not only are adults important. So I, w- I was talking about youth really in the whole book, but and there are a lot of ways in which youth affect adults that I think haven't been fully, um, you know, we just think of as adults helping fix youth, but like youth culture drives a lot of the propaganda that happens on the internet and adults have helped carry that out into the world. And we saw that even on January 6th. So I think one thing I would talk about is that. And the other is just about the, I don't know that I really emphasize strongly enough, although it comes out in the back, but uh, in the, in that last chapter about the, the mistakes we could be making with a securitized approach. And I think that I would want to make sure that that message gets across right in the new preface. When I started looking into global warming, I found there was a lab at Yale and a lab at George Mason and started to understand a little bit of kind of who was working on it. What is there that's like peril other people who are working on this kind of issue in this kind of way? I think that there aren't that many in this country doing it. There are lots overseas. So I, I would say we're a generation to a generation and a half behind on thinking about interventions. I would say the group that I think of as most similar to us is called Moonshot CVE. So they are based in the UK, but they're opening up their DC office right now. They work on more big tech solutions and interventions to interrupt extremism by seeing how you could tweak algorithms. Can you get advertisements? online so that people, when they search for something, don't get taken right away to a white supremacist extremist website, you know, those kinds of things. So they've been doing some really interesting work um, that's been published on their website and elsewhere. But we're, I think, a little different in the sense that we're university-based and have a lot of methodologists who are trying to provide evidence back to the field about with statistical significance, kind of about what works. Because one thing that I think is really risky as, a, as more and more people start creating interventions is that some interventions backfire and uh, particularly around conspiracy theories. What we know is that trying to address conspiracy theories with fact generally reinforces them in the minds of receptive listeners. And so I think we have a real risk as people start to work on interventions that if they're not tested early and often, that we could be having people toss counter narratives into situations that actually just make matters worse. And so that's what we are trying to do in peril is is really be people who can, you know, suggest what is empirically shown to work under what circumstances. There are lots of other research centers that work on far-right extremism. And the START Center at the University of Maryland is doing a lot of great work on database work. The Center for Research on Extremism, which is the biggest place in Norway, um, has been one of the biggest and best for many years. They were founded by the government, funded by the government after um, a terrorist attack in Oslo that killed 77 people in 2011, which you may remember. I mean, mostly children. It's awful. Um, so, you know, again, there, Norway's response to that is to create what is now the largest research center that brings together people across borders transnationally for, for meetings and trainings and workshops and create the next generation of evidence and so I'm not sure. I don't have a lot of hope that that's going to be the reaction um, from this government, but I'm hoping that it's not just more resources to law enforcement. What's your level of optimism versus pessimism? Like in this sort of battle between a far right emerging and mainstreaming and most of the country trying to resist it and keep it out of power and well, I mean, I am an optimist by nature and I try not to be alarmist. Um, but I will say that I think things will get worse here before they get better. Unfortunately, I, I, I'd like to think that January 6th was a turning point, but 
Um, I think there are a lot of people who are still using language and still thinking of January 6th as the culmination of something, as the end of something. No, it feels to me much more like an opening salvo. I agree. I agree. You know, and it's, and I said that to a journalist in the fall and he said, um, you know, it's America's Weimar Republic, which is the, you know, the democracy that failed and led to the Nazi regime. I don't know that we're that. Um, well, it's it's not you know, determined yet. Is the, right? Is it's the not Hillary. determined yet. Yeah. But when you look back in the history books twenty years from now, is that the moment we're in? And what can change to make sure that that's not where we end up? And I do feel like we're at a really critical moment. It's really important to keep that message on point about how, you know, how vulnerable ordinary people are to manipulation, and we've seen it before. And there's no reason to think that we're immune to it um, in this country. And and in fact, given what happened on January 6th, there's every reason to think that millions of Americans are quite susceptible to that. And so it's a wake up call. And I hope that it is a wake up call. I am optimistic. I don't think this is going to end up being our Weimar Republic. But I think the fact that we even say that as a possibility, it should make us all shudder just a little bit um, with concern. I have to say I'm shuddering quite a bit, unfortunately. And I'm very happy that people like you are working on the problem. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? No, I mean, the only thing that I would usually add um, that didn't come up is something about gender, which I think I did, I did raise it around the moms, but you know, it is the one thing I'll say is that it's, we do tend to think of this as mostly a problem of men. And I think one of the things that January 6th showed us, we did have more women showing up and actually even storming the capitals, both because of QAnon and because more women are becoming are becoming engaged in the militias and in the white supremacist fringe. And so it's really important for us to think not just about like the kind of misogyny and toxic masculinity that leads men into some of these movements, but also about the fact that women are increasingly engaged. And we can't just think of like that as a protective factor. That's the way people have talked about it for a long time. Like Women are less likely. We don't have to worry about them. This is really a problem about boys. I think we have to see it across the board, particularly some of those things that I talk about in my book around, you know, the cooking shows, but the language around raising white babies and the purity of the household and um, kind of a lot of those messages have been very appealing to young women too. And so I, it's the only thing that I think is, is often not talked about that much that that's something to keep an eye on. I mean, what's so tricky about it is that a very small number of people going awry, you know, one single person can shoot up 77 people or a lot more. And uh, uh, like a small group can take over a, uh, a state capital or just wreak havoc. How do you get to every last person when you have this extremism going on and, and growing? It can just seed so many problems. Well, that's, you know, it was in the 1980s, the IRA attempted an assassination of a member of the royal family and failed. And their response to it, which now is an oft repeated anecdote, was, that's okay. Like they have to get it right every time. We only have to get it right once. That, if nothing else, should give people pause about a securitized response. Because, you know, if, if our best case scenario is that law enforcement has to get it right every single time, you know, we have a problem, right? We, we know, know that's, won't. it's impossible, right? It's an impossible, even in the best intention and best, you know, perspective. And, and so we can't, see this as only something that we can we need, the, we need the ounce of prevention exactly right and then the last sobering thing i'll say is like you know 2020 had record-breaking gun sales in the states and um i heard on every Friday, year does right exactly <laughs> but this was a particular year and then i heard on last week that january 2021 had 80 percent higher gun sales than the year before and so you know we are just we not only have these problems, but we also have a population that's armed to the teeth in ways that is not true for any other country in the world. And so we, there are lots of reasons why we have to address the situation and violent outcomes are right up there as one of the major ones. If you look at the countries that have had civil wars in the modern age of guns, it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's gruesome. We can't have yeah. it. Yeah. No, we can't have it. And this is a moment to prevent that. And um, so, you know, like I said, I am an optimist by nature. I do think that we'll get there, but I think it's going to take a lot of um, 
sounding the alarm in ways that, you know, I mean, I remember one of my early reviewers from my book, I'll never forget it. It was like, aren't you being alarmist? You know, <laughs> well, <laughs> <It's> maybe. Like, <laughs> I, know, I was like, and then, you know, you're kind of second guessing. I'm like, am I being alarmist? And then like, it keeps getting worse. Right. And so I think, you know, when you start to look back and you see this stuff evolving and rolling out, and now I think Nobody asks me that now, right? Usually nobody says like, aren't you being alarmist now? Because it's worse than they thought it would be. Exactly. I I spent the first few months of Trump, like trying to figure out how much to worry, you know, because it seemed like plenty of reasons to worry, but maybe he will normalize in some way, but he never does. And then he, and then he fights the election results and now he's going to run again, probably. And he, might well win. It's a two-party system. He just exactly. Might. But I think you know a lot of people will say, and this is where I think the statistics globally, like two hundred and fifty percent increase in right-wing terror over the last five years globally, and you know reminding people that like the astronomical growth in in hate groups started after President Obama was elected elected in in reaction to that. And so this is a problem that started before Trump's administration, and it. And it is broader than this. And so that has caused some of the problems. But one of the things I think is, is nobody should think that just because the administration changed that this problem is over. No, we, if it's not Trump, it's some other, it's someone else. There's exactly. the problem. The problem is out there. Exactly. Well, on that very cheerful. <laughs> yeah, I told you, I'm sorry. That wasn't a very good ending. Yeah. So very no, I mean, the fight continues. It does. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time. Anything else you want to say? No, I don't think so. Thanks for great questions. It was a really good conversation. That was Cynthia Miller Idris. She's at CynthiaMillerIdris.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.